0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is
1: Democracy Now. I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. We, we, you know, these are not, like, the nine greatest experts on the Internet. <laughs>
2: The
0: Supreme Court just heard two major cases that could reshape the very structure of the Internet. We'll speak to the Electronic Frontier Foundation about what's at stake and why the future of free speech online could be in jeopardy. Then to Malcolm Harris, author of the new book Palo Alto a history of California, capitalism, and the world. And we look at a new bipartisan push to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment a half century after its passage.
1: The resolution will help address centuries of gender discrimination in America by removing the unnecessary barriers that have prevented us from enshrining the dignity, the humanity, and equality of women into our United States Constitution. All that and more... Coming up.
0: Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. At least 62 people died over the weekend after a boat carrying refugees fell apart at sea off of Italy's Calabrian coast. At least one baby and 12 children were among the dead. Around 80 survivors from Iran, Pakistan and Afghanistan were pulled to safety after they were found in the water clinging to pieces of the ship which had departed the Turkish city of Izmir a few days earlier. The latest migrant tragedy in the Mediterranean came just days after the Italian government of the far-right leader, Giorgia Maloney, approved a new law making it harder for humanitarian aid rescue vessels to carry out their missions. Doctors Without Borders said their rescue ship was detained by Italian authorities as part of the new measures, blocking it from going to sea to save lives for at least 20 days. In the town of Crotone, where the bodies of the victims are being kept, community members gathered to to pay their respects. This is Bishop Francesco Savino.
3: It is the hour of silence, of prayer, of recollection, of deep meditation. But it is the hour in which we must also question ourselves responsibly about this new tragedy, with the respect to which we risk all becoming accomplices.
0: Israeli and Palestinian officials have agreed to measures to de-escalate tensions after meeting this weekend in Jordan. Israel said it would pause discussion of new settlement units for four months and halt new settlement approvals for six months. Officials from Israel, the Palestinian Authority, the United States, Jordan and Egypt took part in the meetings. But some Palestinians, including members of Hamas and Gaza, condemned the negotiations. This is a university student from Gaza.
3: How should we accept such a meeting, a meeting that gives up the Palestinian rights and revokes the right of resistance for the Palestinians?
0: The talks came as more violence plagued the region. On Sunday, Israeli settlers ransacked and torched Palestinian homes in Hawara, near the occupied West Bank city of Nablus, killing at least one Palestinian, injuring dozens of others. The brutal attack there followed the fatal shooting of two Israeli brothers by a Palestinian gunman. This is a young Palestinian girl whose home was attacked by Israeli settlers."
2: We started to hear sounds from outside the house. I moved to the windows in our room, but they were shooting. So I moved down to the floor, then they broke the windows. My mother moved us to a corner because there was no safe place.
0: UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and called on nations to recommit to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as he made a speech earlier today for the 75th anniversary of the landmark international dialogue. Document.
4: The Russian invasion of the Ukraine has triggered the most massive violations of human
5: rights we are living today. It has unleashed widespread death, destruction, and displacement. Attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure have caused many casualties and terrible suffering. Fierce
0: fighting continues in Ukraine as the world acknowledged the one-year anniversary of the start of the war Friday with protests and vigils across the globe. Meanwhile, Ukrainian allies, including the European Union and the U.S., announced further sanctions against Moscow. The Biden administration also said it would provide another $2 billion in weapons to Ukraine. In Kyiv, President Volodymyr Zelensky made a somber but defiant television address on the first anniversary of the war.
3: It was a year of endurance, a year of compassion, a year of bravery, a year of pain, a year of hope, a year of perseverance, a year of unity, a year of invincibility, a fierce year of invincibility. Its main conclusion is that we have survived. We have not been defeated.
0: Zelensky fired his top Ukrainian military commander Sunday without giving a public reason, though a number of high-profile officials were fired or resigned last month as part of an anti-corruption purge. In other war news, Zelensky said he plans to meet Chinese leader Xi Jinping to discuss Beijing's proposal for ending the war. The African Union condemned recent racist comments by Tunisian President Kais Sayed after he called for an end to sub-Saharan migration to Tunisia and claimed black undocumented migrants are part of a plot to alter Tunisia's demographics. Hundreds of people in the capital, Tunis, took to the streets Saturday to demonstrate against hate speech and anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies.
4: The
2: president incited people against each other. The level of racism was much lower in the past, not like now. Now it is normal for you to be assaulted for no reason, just because of your color.
0: This comes amidst ongoing protests against President Sayed since he dismissed the Tunisian government in 2021 and started consolidating power. Last week, security forces arrested prominent opposition figure Juhar Ben Mubarak. as detentions of Syed's critics and political opponents have been ramping up. In El Salvador, human rights advocates are condemning the transfer of some 2,000 suspected gang members to a newly opened mega prison as part of an ongoing crackdown by President Yves Bukele. Over the weekend, he shared images of prisoners wearing nothing but white shorts being rushed into the prison and sitting in rows with their heads down. The so-called terrorism confinement center has a capacity of 40,000 and is now considered to be the largest prison in the Americas, Chile's government has been enforcing a state of exception since last March, suspending several constitutional protections and leading to the arbitrary arrest of an estimated 64,000 people, many without any ties to gangs or access to due process. Human rights groups say at least 80 people have died in police custody. Here in the United States, federal personnel are going door-to-door in East Palestine, Ohio, to conduct health surveys as fallout continues of the February 3rd Norfolk Southern train wreck and release of toxic chemicals. Meanwhile, residents of Harris County, Texas, are expressing outrage following news that toxic wastewater, which was used to extinguish fires from East Palestine, is being transported to Texas for underground disposal. A local environmental group said, quote, county should not be a dumping ground for industry, unquote. In East Palestine, Ohio, prominent environmental advocate and whistleblower Erin Brockovich addressed community members Friday night during a crowded town hall.
6: We often find out
0: five and ten years down the road after you were told it was safe. Oh, oops, Houston, we have a problem. Be vigilant, hold your ground we're going to give you as much information as we can and like i said some of it you might not want to hear it might surprise you it could scare you but now you can know more so you're prepared better Aaron Brockovich is involved in organizing a class-action lawsuit against Norfolk Southern. This comes as Republicans and the House Oversight Committee are launching a probe into Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's response to the disaster, citing what they called his slow pace following the crash. In related news, another Norfolk Southern train derailed Saturday, this time in Lexington, North Carolina. The company said the crash posed no danger to the public. The Wall Street Journal's reporting the Energy Department has revised its assessment of the origins of COVID-19, saying the spread of the virus was likely an unintentional leak from a Chinese lab. The agency, however, has only low confidence in the theory, according to reports. The FBI has previously said it also believes with modern confidence COVID-19 is the result of a lab leak. The latest news widens the split in the U.S. intelligence community as the National Intelligence Council and four other agencies have concluded COVID-19 was naturally transmitted by an infected animal. In other coronavirus news, the FDA has given emergency authorization for the first over-the-counter combined COVID and flu test. It's not yet clear when the test, manufactured by Lucira Health, will be available to consumers in the U.S. and how widely it'll be covered by health insurance. It costs over $70. A New York Times investigation exposes the shocking forced labor of migrant children at factories across the United States. The Times spoke to over a 100 unaccompanied migrant children, largely from Central America, who described grueling and often dangerous working conditions being subjected to long hours and late night shifts at facilities that manufacture products for well-known corporations such as Hearthside Food Solutions, the makers of Cheerios, Fruit of the Loom, Whole Foods, Walmart, J.Crew, Frito-Lay. Others were forced to work as cleaning staff at hotels and coffee harvesters in states like Hawaii. Some of the children were as young as 13 years old. A growing list of media outlets will stop publishing the long-running Dilbert comic strip after its creator, Scott Adams, made racist comments on his YouTube show. Dilbert's distributor has also cut ties with Adams after he said black Americans are part of a, quote, racist hate group, unquote, and advised white people to, quote, get the hell away from black people, unquote. The remarks were made in response to the results of a poll that asked respondents if they agreed with the statement it's okay to be white. A number of major publications severed ties with Adams, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times and USA Today. And here in New York, Uber and Lyft drivers led a 12 hour strike from noon to midnight on Sunday at LaGuardia Airport as they continue to demand fair wages. This is the third strike since December in response to a lawsuit filed by Uber that blocked a pay increase for drivers approved by the Taxi and Limousine Commission and that was supposed to go into effect in December. This is an Uber driver speaking from the picket line yesterday.
6: All they see is the money. All they see is the money. But we're the one who makes the money.
1: The
6: money doesn't make
1: us. The money doesn't make us. We make the money. Oh, that's right. you right. Do you believe that?
6: Yeah. So let's stick together and do the fight together until the end. right.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at two Supreme Court cases that could reshape the future of the Internet. Both cases center on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which has protected Internet platforms from being sued over content posted on their sites by outside parties. Backers of Section 230 say the law has helped foster free speech online. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has described Section 230 as, quote, one of the most valuable tools for protecting freedom of expression and innovation on the Internet. Well... On Tuesday, justices heard arguments in Gonzalez versus Google. The case was brought by the family of Noemi Gonzalez, who was killed in the Paris 2015 terror attack in France. Her family sued Google, claiming the company had illegally promoted Islamic State propaganda videos. Then on Wednesday, justices heard arguments in the case of Twitter versus Tommy. This case was brought by the family of Narwaz Alasaf who was killed, along with 38 others, in a 2017 ISIS attack on a nightclub in Turkey. During oral arguments in the Twitter case, Justice Elena Kagan made this comment, which was met with laughter.
1: I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not, like, the nine greatest experts on the Internet. (laughs)
0: joined by Aaron Mackey he is senior staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation which submitted amicus briefs for both cases Aaron welcome to democracy now it's great to have you with us um, can you talk about the significance of the Supreme Court and the internet last week the idea that um, based on their decision it could change the internet as we know it for all time
3: yes good morning um, the the two cases that were heard were the first time that the Supreme Court has actually Ever come across and and potentially interpreted section 230. And um, what section 230 is, why section 230 is so important is because. Its legal protections for online intermediaries power sort of the underlying architecture that we all use every day. So when Internet users um, use email, when they set up their own websites, when they use social media or create their own blogs or comment on each other's blogs, all of that is powered and protected by Section 230. And so um, EFF's concern in these two cases is that um, the Supreme Court might uh, interpret Section 230 narrowly uh, so that Internet users will not have those similar opportunities in the future to organize online, to speak online, to find their communities online um, because the the law might be narrowed and Internet services might react in a way that limits opportunities for people to both speak online but also limits the, the types of forums and the type of speech that we can have online.
0: Um, Aaron, explain what happened with Noemi Gonzalez in 2015 and what this case is based on.
3: Yeah. So so the the central allegations in in the complaint are not that um, YouTube played any role in the attacks that resulted in um, Noemi Gonzalez's death, um, but it's that YouTube provided um, a number of features and services to either members of ISIS or ISIS supporters that allowed them to recruit um, uh, engage or sort of help or assist um, ISIS in sort of its larger organizational and terrorist goals. And so based on that, they filed a claim, um, an, a civil claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act uh, for aiding and abetting ISIS. And so um, the the courts have been um, basically interpreting Section 230 uniformly to say um fundamentally, those claims are based on the content of user' speech, so posts on youtube um and in uh, Tomney, posts on twitter um and so therefore, the courts have held that um section 230 applies and and sort of bars those claims and so that is the sort of underlying claim and so really i think what the supreme court what you heard last week was them struggling with um where do you draw the line to sort of uh, impose liability on youtube or or twitter or any sort of online service when these claims are sort of very attenuated from from the harm that has occurred in these cases and our concern is that if you put the the sort of liability on those platforms um, for such sort of attenuated roles in, in the claims here, you're really gonna deter them from hosting any speech um, that even remotely deals with this. Um, and this will likely fall on, on a number of organizations um, and individuals, it'll fall on reporters, um, it'll fall on um, people who are trying to seek access and document uh, atrocities across the globe. And so that's what we're, we're concerned about.
0: So when the uh, Supreme Court justices were speaking, they used hypotheticals like pager companies, public pay phones to uh, try to deliberate um, on these cases. Can you talk about their ability to um, understand and regulate the Internet?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think what they were struggling with there was trying to really sort of um, find an analogy that works in terms of the relationship that an online service has with, say, millions uh, of hundreds of millions of users, right, in the case of Twitter and and billions of users in the case of YouTube. And so they were using analogies like cell phone companies or, or beep, uh, beeper companies um, to try to sort of get at, you know, what, what liability should exist or should have existed for those types of companies when they're providing like a communication service that's generally open to anyone. Um, and then someone takes that service, uses that service in a way that is harmful or could be civil, you know, could create culpability either under criminal law or civil liability. And so what do you do to sort of deter or what should the law do to sort of deter, um, you know, the the service from extending their services to those types of, of individuals? And And I think what they struggled with is you know, um, where do we place that liability without actually undermining sort of the the sole, the the entire purpose of Section 230 or generally the the, the people's, uh, these platforms, First Amendment rights and, and users, First Amendment rights to sort of make of make these platforms and use these platforms to speak online.
0: And so what direction do you think the justices are going and based on their questioning and how concerned are you?
3: I think we we continue to be concerned because um this case and in, in Gonzales in particular with section 230 um the the plaintiffs in the case have proposed a test that says if 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 any platform is recommending what they call um sort of promoting user generated content that promotion or recommendation would fall outside of section 230 and so the potential danger there is that platforms organize all of our content in a variety of ways, whether it's organizing it um, by letting users vote things up and down, as in the case of Reddit, or in allowing sort of recommended videos of "We we saw you watch this on YouTube, we think you might like this next. And so the danger there is that the um, you know, are sort of twofold. The first is that the platform's not going to host certain types of information because it's not going to want to be accused later of recommending that content. And then the other danger is that the platforms are not going to, um, organize content in, in ways that we've gone uh, accustomed to. And what the plaintiffs have proposed is to basically make all these services like uh, a search engine where we as the users have to go in and find things. And I think that makes it very difficult for us to easily access material we want, but I think it also makes it really difficult for individual creators and speakers to find the audiences that they desire.
0: Aaron, before you go, I wanted to ask you about a lawsuit against San Bernardino Superior Court seeking transparency of search warrants used by law enforcement to gain data from cell phones in criminal investigations. Um, this involves um, cell site simulators. Can you explain what's at stake? And so often, especially in the case of reproductive rights, we see that one case in one local area can determine law ultimately in the United States.
3: Yeah. So, so EFF had filed a petition to unseal a number of these search warrants uh, in San Bernardino County because um, news reports um, had shown that uh, law enforcement in San Bernardino County were filing more search warrants um, and were potentially using cell site simulators at a higher rate than any county um, in the entire state. And so a cell site simulator operates by mimicking a cell phone tower and pretends to be one. And so that everyone in an area by near a cell site. Uh, simulator, con- their phone connects to it. And, and these, they sort of vary in their functionality. But generally, our concerns are that everyone's- They're like Stingray privacy... devices. Yeah, that was a brand name um, created by the Harris Corp, but there there are a number of them. But uh, we were concerned that everyone sort of private information is sort of captured by these devices and they, they create these sort of broad searches so as you said um, you could deploy one near a sensitive site like a like a health facility um, and you could have the potential to collect a variety of information about people who are totally unassociated with any sort of criminal activity or the particular investigation um, that the police are, are gaining are seeking authorization to deploy it and so um, you know our concerns with with the deployment of these types of surveillance tools is that they're generally done, Um, In a broad fashion, in ways that I think raise potential Fourth Amendment concerns for everyone who happens to be in the vicinity and is subject to these search, but is not sort of under any criminal. And
0: has the information gained from people who are just randomly picked up, swept up in the search, been used in court against them?
3: Yeah, I think that is a big question that we don't know. We know in a variety of other contexts that it is um, that law enforcement often engages in what's known as parallel construction, where they obtain material in a variety of ways that might violate the Fourth Amendment, but then sort of paper over it um, by using sort of other documents um, and claiming about how they got this information. So, you know, that is the concern that once police have this information, they may misuse it um, and, and go after people um, for a variety of benign uh, behavior or even protected First Amendment activity.
0: Well, Aaron Mackey, I want to thank you so much for being with us, senior staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But we're staying with the Internet and its origins. We're going to talk to Malcolm Harris, author of the new book Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism and the World. Then we'll talk about the ERA. Stay with us. Apart by Joy Division. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org. The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue our look at big tech and the internet, we're joined by author Malcolm Harris. He's just published a fascinating new book called Palo Alto. A history of California, capitalism, and the world. It's a history of Silicon Valley and so much more. Malcolm Harris grew up in Palo Alto. As the Los Angeles Times put it, quote, he also had the good luck to make it out alive. In the years Harris attended Palo Alto High, students killed themselves at a rate between four and five times the national average, walking to their deaths on the train tracks that Leland Stanford built to escape the labor unrest of San Francisco more than 100 years earlier. Malcolm Harris joins us now from Washington, D.C. Malcolm, it's great to have you with us. Congratulations on your book. You just heard our first segment, where we looked at the Supreme Court cases last week that could redefine what Uh, these big tech companies can do. Uh, Can you put this all in a historical context for us? Because you're not just talking about the Internet. You're looking at these big tech companies and talking about the history of capitalism in this country.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to see the Internet in its history as this relation between capital and the government. And it's often told as this just Cold War story, a, a defensive plan for America, but the internet really was an offensive tool to coordinate American affairs abroad uh, and corporate affairs within the United States. And so it's important to see that uh, this link as primary and constitutive of the internet.
0: So, talk about the history of Palo Alto. Talk about the history of uh, Leland Stanford, the history of the companies that would lead to um, the number of billionaires, the surge of billionaires that we're seeing today, and why that affects everyone.
5: Well, it's a long history, uh, but you can start in the 1870s, where Leland Stanford, who's the front man for the the railroad and really capital in the West— is facing a situation where workers are yelling outside his house all the time, and he lives on Knob Hill in San Francisco on the biggest house in the fanciest hill, and the workers know just where to find him. And so, like many other rich people trying to escape class conflict, uh, his solution is to move his family to the suburbs, but unfortunately for him, the suburbs don't exist yet in the 1870s, and so he has to create a suburb to move his family to in order to escape this class conflict that he's created. And that's really the original story of Palo Alto. And you could follow that line through the next 150 years.
0: So take us through that line, right through to, well, you growing up in Palo Alto and that um, quote I just read from the Los Angeles Times uh, talking about the number of kids taking their own lives on the railroad tracks that Leland built.
5: Yeah, this is a, a tension that I really point to at the heart of the town, which is this contrast between the greatest wealth explosion in the history of man, which happens over this hundred and fifty years, and not just in the sixties, and not just in the eighties, and not just in the two thousands, but really over this whole period. California and Palo Alto stands for huge amounts of wealth. And at the time at the same time, it builds this uh haunted patina. Uh, And culture of tragedy that I saw firsthand.
0: Um, Go back to Reagan's time. Talk about the Attorney General John Ashcroft.
5: Yeah, so John Ashcroft is the Attorney General for George W. Bush. I mean George W. Bush. Sorry. Of course, uh, in the early two thousands. And when we talk about Section two hundred and thirty or the Telecommunications Act, we talk about the nineties. We talk about the Atari Democrats, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich. And we sort of let George W. Bush and Ashcroft and that administration off the hook. But if you go back and look at the record, when George W. Bush gets elected and he appoints Ashcroft, the tech industry is super excited. There could not be more hyped about the naming of John Ashcroft, which for those of us who were involved politically at the time uh, is surprising because John Ashcroft is this hard right-wing Christian conservative character you know, famous for the Ten Commandments fight. But he was also really well known as being pro-tech, down to the, back to the Betamax uh, case in the 80s. And so, when he came in, he was very, very friendly with the tech companies. The first thing he did was drop the antitrust suit against Microsoft, which was a huge decision for the Justice Department at that point, and really sets the stage for the Internet as we understand it now. He also targeted file sharers for individual prosecution. And so you set up the internet situation we have now where individual users might be liable for if they post the wrong thing uh, for, to an FBI raid. Uh, but the large tech companies themselves are insulated even from monopoly questions. Mm-hmm.
0: And talk about the specific billionaires that were created in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley.
5: Well, there are so many you can't even can't even list them all. But one, I think, it's really important to look at, especially around this uh, historical hinge, is Larry Ellison at Oracle, uh, who made his made his money as a CIA contractor for Oracle, and after nine eleven, really leads the tech industry into a new patriotic pose, a new patriotic position. And he goes to the government and says, I want to create a national ID program for you. I want to put every and require immigrants to have national ID cards and have a national database. Um, And he gets Democratic support for this policy. And it's very close. And it's this last moment of libertarian right and left wing uh, association that defeats this proposal. But since then, it's men like Larry Ellison who've really been running things.
0: And talk about others.
5: Yeah, I mean, you can draw a straight line from him to Elon Musk, to the Google guys, to uh, every tech billionaire that we've got is drawing one way or another from uh, this big pile of money and the people who got rich on the Y2K bubble uh, at around the same time. They're just putting their money back into new platforms, new opportunities, and creating more rich guys like themselves.
0: Now you started writing this book after being a part of Occupy Wall Street. Talk about what most surprised you in your research.
5: What most surprised me in my research in this book is just how short California history really is that it, we're only looking at 150 years since Anglo-American colonization and that means the indigenous people specifically the Muwekma Ohlone who I write about as the ancestral inhabitants of Palo Alto uh, have been expropriated very recently historically it's not the same story as we have on the east coast and so to write one story about american colonization is really to lump everyone together in this inaccurate way so if there's one message i can get across it's that how shallow this history is
0: you conclude by arguing that stanford university should return some of its land to the sen- descendants of the muwekma uh, people
5: yeah, there are 614 registered members of the Muekma tribe. It's a politically organized group of people. They're going to be lobbying the government next month, have been continuing to lobby the federal government for the restoration of their federal recognition. Um, And that's something that Stanford has supported. Stanford's acknowledged them as the ancestral title holders of this land. So now the question is, how do you move back to restoration? How do you move back to returning that land and returning that federal recognition? And that's something people can call their congressmen about.
0: Um, You continually refer to the Palo Alto system. Explain this term that you coined.
5: Well, I didn't coin it. It was coined in the, in the 1870s, actually, when Leland Stanford and Charles Marvin, his head horse trainer, were looking for a new way to train the youngest, fastest horses in the world. And this is how Palo Alto really starts, is as a horse stock farm. And that Palo Alto system, where they're applying new kinds of science and profit-directed tools to create life and monitor the production of life, underlies Palo Alto, even if people don't know that history.
0: You talk about the suicides of classmates when you went to Palo Alto High. You also talk about the suicides of Apple workers in China. Talk more about that.
5: And this is something I, I knew about, but until I was really doing the research, hadn't connected that these waves of suicide, and they're conceived of as waves or clusters, are really happening at the same time. And to young people who tend to be around the same age, these are young workers at the Foxconn plants, for example, and the idea that these are disconnected phenomenon struck me as hard to believe when we know the connection between Palo Alto and the connection between these iPhone factories is so tight. And it seems like the kind of uh, haunting that's affected this town from its beginning
0: you also talk about the roots of eugenics at Stanford University. Explain.
5: Yeah, Stanford's first president, David Starr Jordan, was a, a leading eugenicist, and he helped make the school a real center for eugenics in the United States, um, including by recruiting Lewis Terman, who refounds the IQ test uh, as a test of human quality at Stanford. And Stanford propagates these ideas of human hierarchy and the hierarchy of races throughout the world in the 20th century, culminating with William Shockley Jr., who is one of the most famous racists of the 20th century, as well as one of the godfathers of Silicon Valley.
0: According to a Crunch-based news daily, a news tally, more than 100,000 workers in U.S.-based tech companies um, have been laid off so far this year. Uh, 11,000 meta-workers, 10,000 Microsoft. Um, Talk about the connection between the layoffs and labor organizing.
5: Absolutely. We saw this wave of layoffs, which really also pales in comparison to all the hiring those same companies were doing in the years previous, uh, as a sort of cosmetic offering to the financial markets to show that Silicon Valley still can control its labor costs, that Silicon Valley is still capable of laying off thousands of people at a time without facing any consequences or any disruption. And so it's less the future flow of funds is improved by laying off these workers than that they're signaling something to the markets. And that signaling has been very successful, and they've, the companies that have done it have benefited on their stock price uh, disproportionately.
0: And finally, Malcolm, if you can talk about the Black Panthers and Palo Alto, this history of California
5: capitalism in the world. Sure. The Black Panthers, as a, the Bay Area-focused uh, or located primarily— uh, most important Communist Party is the American post-war period, really has a huge effect not just on the Bay Area um, and not just on the country itself, but on the whole world. And this question of why is California a hot spot in the history of anti-colonial revolt in the 20th century asks us to consider California in this real global historical context as opposed to just part of national history. Um, And the Panthers signaled something important about that context.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Malcolm Harris, journalist and author of the new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism and the World. Coming up, we look at a new bipartisan push to finally ratify the Equal Rights Amendment a half a century after it was passed. Stay with us.
2: A dream come true from way back. you yeah.
0: Sacred Now by Iris Dement. This is Democracy Now, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at what may be a historic next step in the push to codify gender equality in the U.S. Constitution. The Equal Rights Amendment has been introduced in every session of Congress since 1923, finally passed in 1972, more than half a century ago. But it was never ratified by the states. This comes as women continue to face discrimination throughout their lives. And one of the most clear examples, women today are still paid 83 cents for every dollar men earn. Well, on Tuesday, the ERA will get its first hearing in 40 years when the Senate Judiciary Committee meets to discuss a joint resolution to finally affirm it after removing an arbitrary seven-year deadline on the ratification process. The House voted in 2020 to remove the deadline when Virginia became the 38th and potentially pivotal state to ratify the ERA. But the Senate didn't pick up the measure. This is Democratic Congressmember Ayanna Presley speaking at a press conference in support of the ERA, which was introduced by Democratic Senator Dick Durbin.
1: It's not lost on me that the first time the Equal Rights Amendment was put forward was 100 years ago. The coalition was not as diverse nor as inclusive. So I'm especially encouraged and emboldened to demonstrate today we are leading and working In an intersectional and inclusive way to advance this priority. Our resolution will help address centuries of gender discrimination in America by removing the unnecessary barriers that have prevented us from enshrining the dignity, the humanity, and equality of women into our United States Constitution.
0: That's Congressman Brianna Presley. Well, for more, we go to Washington D.C. to speak with Zakia Thomas, President and CEO of the ERA Coalition, and Linda Coberly, who's Chair of the Legal Task Force at the ERA Coalition, also a partner at Winston and Strawn. We welcome you both to Democracy Now. Zakia Thomas, let's begin with you. I'm sure a lot of people are scratching their heads and saying, "Oh my gosh, the ERA—whatever happened with that? Why don't you explain further?"
6: its history and where, why Tuesday is so significant. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, so, the Equal Rights Amendment is would be an amendment to the Constitution that would enshrine protections against sex discrimination in the U.S. So, it was first introduced in Congress about 100 years ago, and since then, it's been passed by both houses of Congress. And in 2020, it was ratified by the 38th state, Virginia, uh, the 38th state needed to—for uh, ratification purposes. So, now— uh, it is the law of the land. We just need to make sure that Congress affirms that and uh, we will have equality enshrined in our Constitution.
0: Now, can you explain more how the ERA came
6: about to begin with and how many decades this has been going on? So, as I said, this is the 100th anniversary of the Equal Rights Amendment being introduced in Congress. And it was originally introduced at the Seneca Falls Convention uh, by uh, suffrage—leaders of the suffragette movement in the United States. So, this is a progression from the earning the right to vote, uh, now earning the equality under the law, because, as we've seen We are um, not—we do not consider women as part of the Constitution, and having the Equal Rights Amendment would allow us to have uh, protections against discrimination for anyone on the basis of sex.
0: So, Linda Coberly, you've been working on this for many years, chair of the Legal Task Force at the ERA Coalition. Explain this whole issue of the seven-year deadline, um, what happened in 1972, that incredible moment, Um, but then not only its passage, but the fact that it had to be ratified by the states and what all that means. Sure.
7: Good to be with you this morning. Um, The process for amending the Constitution is set forth in Article 5. And it has some very specific requirements, which have been met by the ERA. The first requirement is that Congress must pass the amendment and propose it to the states by a two-thirds vote. And that's what happened in the early 70s. And the second requirement is that three-quarters of the the states ratify it. And there are a couple of different ways that that can happen. In this event, Congress chose to have the legislatures of the different states do the ratification. Um, There's nothing in Article 5 that talks about a time limit. And for the first uh, 150 years or so of our republic, there were no time limits on proposed amendments. In fact, the last amendment added to the Constitution, the 27th Amendment, took 203 years to ratify. It was proposed by James Madison, um, and it became part of the Constitution only recently. In the early 20th century, Congress began to use time limits uh, for ratification. And initially, it proposed those time limits as part of the text of the amendment itself. But in the middle of the 20th century, for a short period of time, those time limits were, rem- were moved into the preamble or the proposing clause. And that's where the, the time limit is for the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, the, the proposing clause says— that the amendment will become valid as part of the Constitution when ratified by the states within seven years. So what does that mean? Well, uh, because the time limit was placed in the Proposing Clause to the amendment, it's something that Congress can change. And Congress has already changed that amendment and that time limit once. Um, In the late 1970s, it voted by simple majority to extend the time limit by another three years. And what we're asking Congress to do now is to declare that notwithstanding any time limit uh, included in the original joint resolution, the ERA is valid and part of the Constitution today. Mm
0: -hmm. And then explain what happened. So it's ratified. Um, It's passed. But then talk about the states, the history of the states approving it, and um, how it was Virginia was only recently so the the ERA was very
7: widely supported in the early 70s and state after state ratified very quickly after the amendment was originally proposed. But by the end of the 1970s, the number of ratifying states stayed at 35, which is not quite enough. In order to get three-fourths of the states, we needed 38. And all we had at the end of the 1970s was 35. So then the time limit passed. And the, uh, and decades passed. And the support for the ERA continued. Uh, bills supporting the ERA and new versions of the ERA were proposed every year in Congress for decades. Um, but it wasn't until 2017 that the states began to ratify the original ERA one more time. So the state of Nevada ratified in 2017. Uh, Shortly after the Women's March, and as part of the Me Too movement and the kind of renewed attention to the issue of sex equality, uh, the state of Illinois, where I'm from, uh, ratified in 2018, and then Virginia ratified in 2020. So we now have the last three states, and we have the number required under Article 5 for the Constitution to be amended.
0: I want to turn to opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, especially from the right. This is independent, um, uh, Women's Forum senior policy analyst Inez Stepman speaking to C-SPAN's Jesse Holland on Washington Journal.
4: We already have legal equality. The question then is what changes with the ERA? And what changes is we move from legal equality to the law being rigid and unable to recognize situations in which the differences between men and women matter, right? So, and and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of these different examples, but fundamentally, um, I worry that this ERA will replace the equality under the law that women already enjoy in this country with a sort of sameness or interchangeability uh, between men and women that could actually put women in harm's way.
5: Give us an example of what you're talking about.
4: Sure. Um, so, for example, uh, we have laws spousal social security benefits, right? If you if you stay home, and the vast majority of those who stay home um, are women who, who stay home to take care of their kids, uh, that law amounts to a subsidy, according to some proponents of the ERA, uh, for stay-at-home mothers, and therefore is a violation of the equality principle, even though it no longer says men and women, it just says spousal social security support. So, Linda Coberly, if you can respond.
7: So, uh, first of all, I think there there are a lot of critiques of the ERA that started in the 1970s that don't make a lot of sense anymore. Um, in the in the 70s, there were legal distinctions based on sex, for example, in uh, WIC benefits um, and. Uh, Alimony and palimony and that sort of thing, where women and men were treated differently, including in child custody, for example. Um, a lot of those changes have, a lot of those differences have already been eliminated in the last three years because the law recognizes, and we recognize in shaping the law, that uh, distinctions on the basis of sex are often arbitrary. Um, I think the important thing, though, is that the uh, the ERA is not a rigid law in the sense like laws are passed by Congress, the ERA is a principle, like all of the principles reflected in our Constitution. And courts will interpret that principle if it becomes part of the Constitution. Um, and will look for instances where the government has a very strong interest in drawing a sex distinction, and it will weigh them. I know mean, constitutional right is absolute. We see that in the extensive case law around the First Amendment, for example. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that the, the ERA is not, um, it, it is not something that would replace or, um, uh, Or eradicate the existing constitutional order. Now, Inez mentioned that there is uh, constitutional equality already, and maybe she's legal equality, and maybe she's referring to the 14th Amendment. Having read the Dobbs decision, I'm concerned about that. Um, about that authority that finds protection against sex discrimination in the Fourteenth Amendment. A majority of the Supreme Court has made clear that it will interpret the Constitution based only on the words that it contains, and it will interpret those words based only on the understanding uh, of the people who included those words in the Constitution originally. And that means that, according to this Supreme Court, the meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment is frozen in time in 1868 at a time when no one understood that uh, the, the 14th Amendment would protect against discrimination on the basis of sex. So to the extent that we already have legal equality, there is a real risk that that equality will be eroded. And, of course, statutes can be changed. And a lot of the other sources of legal equality that we have in our system today are vulnerable to political change. So for that reason, we think it's critically important to have an amendment in the Constitution that recognizes a principle of constitutional equality.
0: So, uh, Zakia Thomas, can you talk about the organizing that's going on and what specifically is going to be happening in the Senate Judiciary Committee on Tuesday?
6: So on Tuesday, we will have uh, the chance to, t- to discuss the importance of the Equal Rights Amendment and why it is the law of the land and why Congress should affirm it as such. And so you'll hear from constitutional scholars, you'll hear from the um, Lieutenant Governor of uh, Illinois, and you'll hear from advocates about the work that's been done, but also how the ERA impacts everyday life. And so on Tuesday, we are excited to have the opportunity to talk about the importance of the Equal Rights Amendment, why it's still relevant, and why it's so important for all of us to, to be protected under the Constitution with uh, constitutional equality.
0: Let me play so, a clip of Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, and then we're going to come back to you.
5: Nothing in the Constitution prohibits us from declaring the ERA as law of the land as it should be. So we're going to get the job done. We're going to start in the Senate Judiciary Committee with a hearing so the people of America know what's at stake here uh, and what we're really fighting for. And then we're going to bring it to the floor and we're going to get a vote and people on the record as it should be. It's time for us to vote for equality.
0: So that's Senator Dick Durbin. Um, then they'll take it to the floor of the Democratic-controlled Senate. But then there's the House, Sakia.
6: Yes. And so we also have uh, the identical legislation being put forth in the House as well. And Iona Presley is leading that effort as the, the main sponsor of the uh, resolution in the House. And so once we get through this fight in the Senate to make sure that we have, um, we have the support, which we think we do— uh, to get the Equal Rights Amendment uh, affirmed, and then we take the battle to the House and we'll do the same there. We do have bipartisan support for both bills, uh, which is, uh, ex- which is a, a wonderful occurrence for all of us to have. And it just shows that there is extreme—there um, is a, a large amount of support for the Equal Rights Amendment in both parties and in both houses.
0: I want to go to um, a quote of the Columbia law professor, Catherine Frankie, who wrote in The Hill in November, quote, the leaked Supreme Court opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case serves as a potent reminder of how weak the protections against sex discrimination are in the current U.S. Constitution. A resolution now pending in the Senate could change that. The measure already passed by the House would lift the last hurdle for ratification of the equal rights amendment. Of course, a vote on the resolution must overcome a potential filibuster by Senate Republicans. While it may seem counterintuitive, holding and losing the vote to lift the filibuster on the ERA may be just what we need to push it over the finish line. Linda Coberly, if you could continue from there in your response to what she's saying.
7: Yes. And I, I think Professor Franke uh, addressed the the issue that I mentioned in Dobbs, where um, the current majority of the Supreme Court has said that it will limit its reading of equality to the meaning that uh, those who ratified the 14th Amendment had in their minds when they voted to ratify. You know, the late Justice Ginsburg uh advocated for a very long time, both as an advocate and then ultimately as a Supreme Court justice, for finding some protection against discrimination on the basis of sex in the 14th Amendment. And she was successful. But uh, given the move within the Supreme Court, I think that win, that uh, that protection is vulnerable. Uh, The late uh, Justice Scalia was very explicit about that. And he said that he did not recognize any protection uh, against discrimination on the basis of sex in the Constitution. And that's exactly why we need to amend it.
0: And what would it mean if the Equal Rights Amendment were actually ratified, were passed? In the case of, for example, what's about to come down any day now, that Texas judge's decision that could block access to the common abortion medication, mifepristone, um, this abortion pill, uh, medication abortions, are used in more than half the abortions in the United States. So how would it affect this and overall reproductive health? care, reproductive rights in this country, Linda?
7: Well, that's a great question, and ultimately, it's a question that's going to be decided by the courts. But we certainly think that reproductive health is part of equality. And if there is a, a statute or a state regulation or, or something like that that, prete- that prevents access to health care on the basis of sex— then the ERA would stand in the way of that. I think the exact permutations of how that works is something that's going to be resolved by courts probably over many years. But remember, the fact that this is going to be in the courts is not a surprise. All the constitutional provisions are in the courts. And we have ongoing litigation and uh, court decisions interpreting amendments. That's why we have—the uh, Constitution is something you can put in your pocket, unlike the U.S. Code, which requires a whole room uh, of books to capture. So the principles in the Constitution are designed to be, um, be high-level. They're designed to be principles that are interpreted by courts. But certainly we believe that reproductive health care is an important aspect of equality and the ERA would help to shore that up.
0: And finally, Zakia Thomas, what is your sense, especially among younger women, um, of their awareness of what's going on right now around the ERA? 2026 is the 250th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution, which is the government is planning to, uh, mark with major events. Um, what would it mean if the ERA were the law of the land and in the Constitution?
6: Well, imagine a world or a country in which uh women and men were paid equally for the work that they're done that they do. Imagine a, a country in which LGBTQ+ plus individuals were actually protected um against discrimination because of who they are. And you know, imagine a world where we can all be sure that we have equality and that our rights will not be infringed upon um because someone thinks that we're different. Um, And that's the foundation and the principle, really, that that Linda was talking about, that the Equal Rights Amendment provides. And we see overwhelming support in this country for the Equal Rights Amendment. About 78 percent of the country thinks that we should have an Equal Rights Amendment in our Constitution and that men and women should be treated equally under the law. It's unfortunate that about 73 percent think that we already have an ERA in our Constitution. But that's why this is so important and so imperative for us to get the word out about the Equal Rights Amendment, about this moment in history, that we have the opportunity to change the future for this country and all of our people.
0: Zakia Thomas, I want to thank you for being with us, President and CEO of the ERA Coalition, and Linda Chair of the Legal Task Force at the ERA Coalition. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.